Hi everybody, Liam here. Before we get started with today's episode, I just want to tell you about a podcast called Revolutionary Care, an Oakland story. It's about the evolution of healthcare over the past few decades, and specifically, it deals with sickle cell anemia, which is an illness that primarily affects African Americans. This show covers everything from the history of the Black Panthers setting up community clinics to the latest breakthroughs in gene therapy. But uh, here's the thing. Even if you don't have sickle cell or know anybody who does, this show is still a fascinating lens to examine healthcare and the struggles to provide equitable treatment. Revolutionary Care, an Oakland story, was created by UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals, and you can find it anywhere you get podcasts. I'll also drop a link in the show notes. Big thank you to UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals for supporting this episode of East Bay Yesterday. All right, one other thing before we start the show. I've been hearing from some local teachers who use this podcast as part of their curriculums, and a few of them have been asking for content warnings. So here's one for today's episode. This show includes mentions of violence, sexual assault, and a few curse words. The descriptions are not graphic, but it might not be appropriate content for younger listeners. Okay, on with the show. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. There is in Oakland a fresh wind stirring. A movement within men and women from all walks of life a message so tangible that you can almost reach out and touch it with your hands. And that message is this. Oakland's time is now. Our time to write a new chapter in the history of, of American education. Looking out, out at you today, I see only the confirmation of this message. Your aspirations for children and for yourselves, your professional competence, the ideals which brought you into this field, these are all the ingredients we need to put everything together in Oakland. That was the voice of Dr. Marcus Foster, a man widely recognized as one of the greatest educators of his generation. In 1970, Foster was hired as the first black superintendent of Oakland Unified School District. He was brought here to help rescue a deeply troubled system, but within three years of his arrival, he was assassinated. Exactly 50 years ago this month, Marcus Foster was shot with cyanide-laced bullets by a shady militant group that called itself the Symbionese Liberation Army. Even though many of the details of Foster's death are known, it remains, in my mind, one of the most mysterious murders of a notoriously turbulent era. Currently, there are exhibitions honoring Dr. Marcus Foster on display at both the Oakland History Center and AMLO, the African American Museum and Library at Oakland. So I wanted to devote an episode to honoring the legacy of this great man because in his short time here, he made a tremendous impact 
on Oakland schools. Also, I wanted to take this tragic anniversary as an opportunity to explore the murky origins of the Symbionese Liberation Army, the group responsible for Foster's death. Because although they supposedly emerged from Berkeley's revolutionary underground, there are some startling connections that point to a more complicated story. For example, the SLA's founder, a petty criminal turned informant named Donald DeFries, was mentored while in prison by a man named Colton Westbrook, who seems to have had deep, deep ties with American intelligence agencies. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Wait until you hear about DeFries' unexplained escape from Soledad Prison. But you know what? I'm getting ahead of myself now, so let's take a step back and set up these interviews. The first conversation you'll be hearing today is with Patanisha Williams, the curator of AMLO's exhibit about Dr. Foster. Uh, it's called Audacity to Believe, and it's on display through the end of the month. As you'll hear in the interview, Patanisha was chosen to curate this show, not only because of her long career in Oakland's art world, but also because of her personal and family connections to Marcus Foster and Oakland schools. In the second half of the show, we'll hear from best-selling author and investigative journalist David Talbot. Talbot wrote about the SLA in his book, Season of the Witch, Enchantment, Terror, and Deliverance in the City of Love which was selected as the featured read for San Francisco's One City, One Book program a few years back. In addition to his expertise on the history of American intelligence agencies and their shady dealings, Talbot was also a student radical around the same time that the SLA emerged, which I think gives his take on this twisted saga some much-needed nuance and context. All right, let's kick things off with cultural curator Pat Tanisha Williams. This is East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donohue. Stay tuned. So for people who don't know who Marcus Foster was, can you tell us a little bit about him and uh, the significance of his appointment as the first black superintendent of Oakland Unified School District. Yes, so uh, Dr. Marcus Foster uh, was born and raised in Philadelphia, and he attended Shaney College, which is the first historically black uh, college, HBCU. He went on to become the first African-American to receive uh, principalship. So he was the first principal, black principal in Philadelphia. And um, eventually he took over a school called Gratz, Simon Gratz High School, which had the reputation and the nickname the loser school. This school had a 70% dropout rate. He took that school and he turned it around. And he turned it around doing things that just make common sense, but took a lot. He went door to door and re-registered students. That was the first thing he did. He talked to the students, he talked to the parents, asked why weren't they in school. A lot of them simply couldn't get to the classrooms, couldn't afford to get to the school. He talked to the city, he cleaned up abandoned schools, uh, abandoned buildings and said, we need satellite education classrooms. 
he talked to parents who couldn't afford and parents were offered the opportunity to be educated with their students. He went to the community, to uh, businesses and said, how can you support what's going on here? So it was all hands on deck. And he earned the reputation nationwide for being an administrator and urban education activist. Then he was appointed to, or he took the position here in Oakland to be the first African-American superintendent of a large school district. And what was happening in Oakland around the time that he was selected for this position? Can you set a little context for what issues the schools were facing or why they needed someone of this kind of natural national stature to come in and and kind of take control? Uh, So the climate at the time, Oakland had a large African-American population. And all of the politicians, including the school board, were white males. Then you had groups like the Black Panthers who were making changes, uh, making some very positive changes in education, some very basic, like, hey, kids are hungry in the morning. Like, that's why they can't focus. So they created, you know, what's now a standard of the breakfast program. Mm -hmm. They also pushed to have community, to have black teachers and just representation. And the community, of course, supported that. So I think that may have been a factor as to why he was recruited here. Not that it was smooth sailing, because he was also criticized for his ways of working with everyone. Mm. You know, when it comes to militant groups, from my understanding, and it's not that I read these things anywhere. These are a lot of conversations with a lot of people. Um, from my understanding, there were critics who said, well, he's an Uncle Tom because he, he's working with white folks. Um, and, and one of the ways he worked with um, white people or corporate America was to create the first private education fund to support a public school. He said, hey, we need money. Now it's a standard. There's 2,500 across the country. Mm-hmm. But Oakland, the created the first, or Marcus Foster did, and that's what went on to become the Marcus Foster Education Institute. Sorry, uh, just jumping in real quick with a bit of an awkward disclaimer. Uh, As I was putting the finishing touches on this episode, local news site KQED published a story about the Marcus Foster Education Institute uh, allegedly misappropriating funds in recent years. I'm not going to get into the details here, but I will put a link in the show notes. Okay, back to Pat and Nisha. So he had a few critics, but for the most part, um, he was able to bring so many people together. And that is what was so very touching in doing the research. So, Yeah, tell me about that process. How did you approach the research? Like what resources were you using? Who were you talking to? Um, I, I went and saw the exhibit recently and, you know... He had such a huge life. Like, how do you convey that life in one museum exhibit? What did you want to focus on? What were the big milestones? Tell me about that. Well, a lot of it unfolded itself. So I started by technical research. So I went to the library, the Oakland History Mm -hmm. Room, the archives, pulled out a lot of newspaper articles about him. And the AMLO, African American Museum and Library, has awesome archive on him. So 
it was a lot to learning his story. There was a lot to learning his philosophies. I will tell you this, there, there was a certain point early on where I was intimidated. I dropped out of college and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm in this room with all these PhDs and maybe I'm not the one to do this. That's when the magic happened. That's when I felt a super connection to him. I just, um, I was listening to his speech to the Oakland School District and to the community at large about the excellence and the role that they were on. He mentioned how not every student learns in a classroom. Mm. And that is why it was his goal, and he did, to turn the community into a classroom. Hmm. to start career paths education. Mm -hmm. And when I heard that, I was like, wow, if that's the case, I certainly have a long educational <laughs> career. And um, I felt a little better. And I said, well, I keep thinking of Afrofuturism, like, mm. you know, the historical past, but imaginations of the future. He was that guy. Yeah, that's so funny that you mentioned that, because now that I'm thinking about the dates, I think that he came to Oakland right around the same time that Sun Ra was filming Space is the Place yes. here. Yes. Which is, of course, the Afrofuturistic yes. sci-fi classic musical masterpiece. There are so many connections. So now I'm saying, how do I present this to the Institute that this is where I want to go with this? Yeah. And I said, well, I'm going to ask his daughter. She sits on the mm. board. Maybe if I have a conversation with her, mm -hmm. see how she feels about it. If she's okay, yeah. full speed ahead. So I call her, and she basically says, oh, one of my good friends is a professor of Afrofuturism. She can speak at the wow. reception. Wow. So I was elated. And then it opened the door for me to just share with her all of the magic I was finding. Mm. And she shared with me, she said, you know, I know that my mother chose you because she's very active on the other side. Wow. And she said, my mother had five village daughters, but one was very special to her. Mm -hmm. And she was her number one. And her name was Joyce Gordon. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> and... I laughed because I said, you know, Joyce Gordon has about 20 village daughters, but I'm her number one. For anyone who doesn't know, Joyce Gordon, of course, has been running a fantastic gallery in downtown Oakland for many years that features a lot of just incredible local art. I think I saw the um, one of the shows that really stood out in my mind was the uh, African-American Quilters Guild from West Oakland. And when they hung their quilts there, that these beautiful pieces of fabric that showcase scenes from Oakland history Mind-blowing. So Joyce Gordon, local legend, absolutely. Yes, so you, I got chills. Mm -hmm. I said, wow. So there was a very authentic connection to Dr. Foster. Wow. His wife mentored my mentor. And if you understand Joyce Gordon, you understand that not only is she a curator and a storyteller, she's heavily involved in, in all aspects of community. Yeah. So with that... I felt more empowered about going further with the way I wanted to tell this story. Mm -hmm. And the way I wanted to tell his story is authentic, is that he was here for a very short time, yeah. less than three years, mm -hmm. and he did dynamic things. And I started asking everyone around me, do you remember Marcus Foster? What do you? Because if you grew up in Oakland, you know the name, mm -hmm. and you know Marcus Foster. Most people know it as a school. Mm -hmm. which is now closed. It was an elementary school in West Oakland. Right. 
It's now closed. And it, it, that saddens me for so many reasons. One, you know, Marcus Foster, part of his master plan was to integrate community mm-hmm. in, in various ways, in, in, in the deepest ways, meaning uh, families had a choice on, in, in a say in hiring teachers mm-hmm. and hiring principals. Mm-hmm. He broke down the district into three smaller districts. He said one superintendent cannot be responsible for all of these schools. Yeah. So there needs to be three separate superintendents. Mm-hmm. He empowered teachers and those closest to the students to developing their own curriculum and giving them resources to do that. He created an art school. He created extended learning here in Oakland, things that are still going on. So he really, truly gave his life in so many ways. And it just saddens me that there's no street, there's no school, there's no building that honors Dr. Marcus Foster. And I also realized this. I said, well, I'm guilty too. I didn't know how exactly he died. Mm -hmm. I didn't know his story. Mm -hmm. So that's why it was super important to me that this story, that this exhibit is a space to not only tell his story, but to address why it isn't talked about. And me being a storyteller and being one who loves to talk about the magic of 7th Street and the blues that mm-hmm. happened there, mm-hmm. I realize why these things aren't talked about. And that is because the people who experience them are a bit traumatized. Yeah. When things like that are taken away um, intentionally, they hurt. And people, especially black people, and I go back and forth with African-American and black, you okay. know, the, the saying, but to be honest, I'm more comfortable with black. I grew up in the 70s. We were black. <laughs> but I do honor that we are yeah. African-American. So black people have a way of dealing with things. We're told you take it in stride. Mm-hmm. Often we weren't given that space to heal and mourn. So it was important to me that we honor that he truly gave his life, not intentionally. He didn't intend to die, but he was killed because he was doing a good job. Well, I think one of the things about his death is that not only was it traumatic and um, just horrifying, but also like so senseless and confusing in a way. So can you sort of, I mean, I know it's a very complicated story, but kind of can you explain, sort of uh, summarize what happened and how do you wrap your head around, you know, this horrific tragedy that, that in so many ways just seems so senseless? So he was assassinated by the SLA, a, a new militant group, and they stated that they felt he had military type of ideas specifically him wanting ID cards for students, another standard that we have now. Yeah, that doesn't seem very controversial to ask students to carry oh, they were IDs. Stretching. Yeah. They were stretching. Yeah. And the reason ID cards were needed were teachers were th- were threatened, beaten up. There were students on their campus that didn't belong there, so there, there needed to be um, some type of security mm-hmm. Um that is a standard, once again, to this day. But the SLA assassinated him, um, cyanide 
in the bullets. Like they shot him and uh, Robert Blackburn, his associate superintendent. Mr. Blackburn survived and he went on to do great work to continue um, the legacy. But they took his life and felt that they were going to get much credit in the community because they did something super militant. They did not expect the backlash from community that they got. Not at all. Uh, one theory that I heard, I've talked to so many people, um, that I resonate with is that was exactly why they tried to just shortly after that kind of distract from that mm. by kidnapping Patty Hearst. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it certainly did. It, yeah. it took all of the attention away from Dr. Foster being assassinated. So what ended up happening with that group? Uh, sorry for the interruption, but since the second half of this episode will be more focused on the SLA and what happened to them, we're going to skip over this part and pick things up again right here. You mentioned uh, the backlash to his murder. The Black Panthers, for example, who were around at the time, like they denounced this and just pretty much any other group that had any credibility, right. I think, realized that this was uh, not justified in any way. Right. I mean, he, just the idea of targeting this person, it's, again, to this day, 50 years later, hard to really make sense of what they were thinking because he was such a, you know, upstanding educator. The idea that he was part of this government crackdown apparatus was, that was trying to do whatever they were saying he was trying to do is just... I mean, it's really insane. There's yes. almost no other way to put it. Well, it feels insane, but I'll tell you, I've talked to so many elders. <laughs> and, you know, off the record, mm -hmm. they'll say flat out, they're like, that's what happens when a black leader is doing its job. Mm. And it's not a coincidence. Yeah. And I'll tell you this, at my curator's talk, a commun community member, I guess he had just kind of had it with the, the conversation. And he said, let me tell you this. Mm -hmm. And he broke down that the SLA was connected to the government. Yeah, I've heard theories about that. Yes, and that it is no coincidence that they were basically used to take out Dr. Mm -hmm. Foster because yeah. he, at, by that point, he was doing dynamic things mm -hmm. and things that were working. You know, His book, Making Schools Work, is a roadmap for educators wow. to really... Um, touch our children and make a difference. Uh, what I say that the huge difference between education now is that they are up against a strong pipeline to prison. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. what our system represents. Uh, Oscar Wright is an education activist from Oakland. He's 100 years old. And he is amazing. You must visit his home. Yeah. His home that he built he has letters that are all along, framed all along the walls, two floors, and these are letters from presidents. These are letters where he kept because th these weren't these are like typed, written <laughs> letters. But he he kept his receipts, and he can explain to you how affirmative action started and mm -hmm. his hand in it, wow. like wow. the union meetings, just amazing. Yeah. But he was there around the time, um, Dr. Foster, Dr. Foster was uh, here in Oakland and he spoke at the reception for the exhibition mm -hmm. and he, you know, he's a hundred years old, so he's speaking his truth. 
And he says, there's no coincidence that yeah. he was taken away. Wow. Um, and he was doing great things. So Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier that you felt like uh, Dr. Foster's uh, murder was overshadowed by what happened later in the whole SLA saga with Patricia yeah. Hearst and the kidnapping and the whole media circus around that. And... Uh, that was something that I noticed too as I was researching the story. Uh, like just to give one example, there's a, like a three hour long documentary about the SLA that's out. You can find it on YouTube. And in this three hour documentary about the SLA, there's literally maybe like two minutes about Dr. Foster yeah. and his killing. I think he's mentioned, you know, in one scene and there's a clip of him and then it's like onto the two hours and 55 minutes yes. about Patricia Hearst. And it's, it's frustrating, it's infuriating, but you can see that basically their plan worked in a way of distracting people from this horrible act they did. And then in this twisted way, kind of won a lot of people back by putting on this uh, act like they were these Robin Hoods, you know, facilitating free food giveaways and things like that. And it really overshadows um, what they really were, which I think is something uh, much uh, more sinister. Absolutely. And um, if you look overall, like I, I mentioned before, um, there's no mention of Dr. Marcus Foster pretty much in a lot of places and yeah. spaces where there yeah. should be. Yeah. It's almost as if um, let's not talk about him. And then we can't talk about his awesome instructions and plans that could really help a community thrive. It is the passion and power of humanity that we seek to explore and expand when we teach reading and math. And if we divorce school subjects from the guts and hopes of human beings, we can expect students to find them gutless and hopeless. So what shall we do here in Oakland? Our hallmark will be a relentless search for the improvement of basic skills for all our children. I don't have kids, so I'm not going to pretend like I've got my finger on the pulse of everything happening in Oakland okay. schools now, but I read the headlines, and I know the school district has been going through um, a lot of you know crises over the years, whether it's school closure, controversies, budgets, etc. Yeah, um, exactly. And so I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about how Marcus Foster's life might hold lessons that are still relevant, that people who are in education in places like Oakland might you know, take to heart and, and learn from. Absolutely. One thing, I would encourage everyone to go on YouTube and Google Dr. Marcus Foster Oakland speech mm. and listen to it. It's about an hour long. Mm -hmm. I listen to it all the time. Wow. It is inspiring. I'll tell you this. I mean, he was a great orator. He, there was something about the way he spoke, kind of like Dr. King, mm -hmm. like where you just hear this excellence. And so one thing I, I came to learn about him in his research that I really adored is that as much as he was into education, he had two doctorates. He also loved like being a street person. My uncle told me when he was at McClymouth, he thought Dr. Foster was a principal because he was there so much. And he was just talking to them. A lot of students say that. He's the reason I went to college. 
I asked my uncle, I said, wow, does he have something to do? My uncle was the first of his siblings to go to college, of my mother's eight siblings. And he said, yes, he had something to do with that. By that time, I was not surprised because I saw how intertwined my life and how it had been affected. And not just mine, a lot of people I talked to, Mm. they were like, oh, yeah, I received a Marcus Foster scholarship. Um, He also realized not everyone is on the same path of education. So how do we utilize the whole community as a classroom? And that meaning career path education, um, turning the BART district into a curriculum, into a class, Hmm. doing internships. And some of these things are still um, displayed, like at MetWest High School, Mm -hmm. which is career path path education. Coincidentally, my friend is principal there, Dr. Shalonda Gregory. Mm -hmm. So there's all these wonderful um, connections, just just really connected. Oh my gosh. Well, Pat and Nisha, I'm so glad that you were the person selected to put this exhibition together. It just sounds not only, you know, is it a, a life that you're passionate about celebrating Dr. Foster's life, but all these personal connections that you have with him and his family and his story. So... I would just encourage anyone who's listening to this episode to go down to AMLO and check out the exhibition. I think it's running through the end of November, if I remember correctly. So you still got time. Um, Was there any final words that you wanted to say before we wrap things up? No, I just, I also want to take a moment just to honor and thank Dr. Marsha Foster, Mm -hmm. um, his daughter, for her support. Mm -hmm. During this, she gave me uh, personal pictures that no coincidence matched the color theme. You know, there was just all of this wonderful magic. And I just encourage everyone to, um, even if you don't get the time to take out the exhibition, Google him. Yeah. Listen to Mm -hmm. the speech. No. And and, and it just feels really good when you understand that there are ancestors, there are people that came before you that had ideas for you for the future. So... um, well, thank you so much for uh, having this conversation with me today. It was really a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for doing all that you do. All right. Once again, that was Pat Tanisha Williams, and the exhibit she curated at AMLO will be up through the end of this month. And uh, don't forget, there's another exhibit honoring Dr. Foster at the Oakland History Center, which is on the top floor of the main library, and that one is running through the end of the year. I'll drop links to both of those in the show notes. Okay, next up is David Talbot, who over his long journalism career has written for The New Yorker, Time Magazine, and uh, dozens of other major publications. In 1995, David co-founded Salon.com, one of the very first online news sites, and he also wrote Brothers, a best-selling book about the Kennedy brothers, Uh, JFK and RFK. On a personal note, David was my boss when I worked for Salon back in the early 2010s. His book, Season of the Witch, uh, the one we'll be discussing today, uh, it received glowing reviews when it was released back in 2012, and that's the book that includes an explosive chapter on the history of the Symbionese Liberation Army. I actually uh, (laughs) DJed the release party for this book and reading it inspired me. Uh, It's one of the works that really inspired me to focus on local history. So uh, full disclaimer, I consider David a dear friend. Now, switching gears, I want to establish a few facts real quick before we get into this conversation, because some of what you're about to hear could be labeled, quote unquote, 
conspiracy theory. But here are a few things that are indisputable. During the post-World War II era, American intelligence agencies ran several notorious programs focused on exploring behavior modification, or what some might call brainwashing or mind control. There have been mountains of credible books written on this topic. Uh, if you want a quick crash course in what I'm talking about, you can start by Googling MKUltra, for example, which was exposed to the U.S. public by a official congressional investigation uh, in one of the most notorious MKUltra experiments, a program called Operation Midnight Climax. CIA agents dosed unsuspecting victims with LSD to see if they could get them to reveal secrets. Uh, it actually gets a lot, lot worse. But again, I'm just trying to give you a sense of the kinds of bizarre criminal behavior that uh, intelligence agencies were getting away with back then. And another thing that the intelligence agencies were obsessed with during this era was discrediting the left. And they weren't shy about using all kinds of dirty tricks uh, to do that. Programs like COINTELPRO, a long-running operation that infiltrated and sabotaged groups like the Black Panther Party, might have remained hidden forever. We might not know about it if it wasn't for a group of activists that burglarized internal documents from an FBI office um, that were later published and verified by the Washington Post and you know many other mainstream news outlets. Look, all this is to say, I hope you'll listen to this conversation with an open mind. Because if you're skeptical of the idea that the American intelligence apparatus could have played a role in the creation of the SLA, just look at their track record during this era. Look at the things that have been proven beyond the shadow of a doubt, and you'll realize this claim, it's not as far-fetched as it might sound at first. All right, enough preamble. Here's my conversation with David Talbot. Let's start off by setting the context of this era. Where were you in 1973? Can you tell me a little bit about like the political culture of the left, you know, the far left in the Bay Area at that time when the SLA first emerged? Yeah, it was a mess. <laughs> I remember it pretty well uh, as a young activist myself at the time. Uh, there was a lot of fear, a lot of confusion about what the SLA was. We didn't, we hadn't ever heard of this group. We didn't know what Symbionese Liberation Army meant. The word Symbionese, it confused people. Um, we didn't know what had erupted from the underground. And so there was a great effort to figure out what had happened and why. Yeah, and it seemed like by 73, already a lot of the optimism of, you know, the 60s had dissipated and there had been assassinations, there had been FBI infiltration via COINTELPRO of groups like the Black Panther Party, and it just seemed like there was a lot of uh, cynicism and uh, paranoia and violence and infighting and just all kinds of things seeping into this scene that was no longer, you know, we're several years past the summer of love era now, right? Exactly. I mean, 
I was also, uh, I dropped in out of the 60s. I was at college in Santa Cruz in the late 60s, early 70s. And I felt the euphoria of that time, the, the hope that still existed, particularly before you write the assassinations, when you felt leaders like Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, uh, could make a difference. And so there was a feeling of gloom in San Francisco in those years and the Bay Area in general. So when the SLA came along in the 1973, like I said earlier, we were confused. Uh, all of this politics seemed rather strange to us, and we were trying to figure it out. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the first thing that put the SLA on the map for a lot of people was the Marcus Foster assassination. Do you remember anything about the the impact that that had on society at the time, the uh, awareness that this group existed and this was their first kind of statement to the world? Well, as I say in my book, Season of the Witch, it was, yes, a very bizarre target. He was uh, a progressive educator, black educator in Oakland, superintendent of public schools. Uh, and why him, of all people? Why did they select him as a target? It just seemed to us crazy. And, of course, two of the people within the SLA, uh, Thera Wheeler and Robin Steiner, both objected to this politically and personally. They thought it was crazy uh, to target someone like Foster, and they objected to it. And uh, Wheeler was forced out of the group. He went on the lam to, uh, he thought, to protect his life at the time. Steiner later dropped out of the SLA as well, soon after the assassination of Foster. So even within this crazy cult, and that's what it was, it was a cult around Donald DeFries, uh, a.k.a. Sin Q., um, even within the strange cult, there was some dissension about picking Foster as a target of all people. Yeah, yeah. So let's take a step back. The SLA, how did it get started? You mentioned that the, the leader was this uh, very shady character, Donald DeFries, who later you know, went under the name, the uh, I guess, the nom de guerre of Sing Q. Where, where did this guy come from, and uh, how did this group emerge? What do, we, what do we know about the origins of the Symbiese, Symbionese? It's hard to even say the name, Liberation Army. Yeah, look, Donald Fries, as I say in my book, was uh, a snitch, obviously. He was a police informer, uh, hapless uh, you know, crook who got caught and uh, got flipped by the cops and became an informer within the prison system. And I think at Vacaville, which is a strange place even then, we knew uh, the prison at Vacaville, um, is where they did actually a lot of brainwashing, a lot of mental experiments on prisoners. And he fell under the sway while he was at Vacaville under a guy named a weird psychotherapist named Colton Westbrook. Westbrook had his own strange intelligence background. He'd been uh, working for the CIA in Vietnam. While he was at uh, Vacaville, Donald DeFries, uh, as I say, fell under his influence. And I think for some time he was uh, Colton Westbrook's uh, subject. It was the Frankenstein monster. Colton Westbrook created Donald DeFries and had an intelligence agenda attached to him. Okay, uh, just jumping in real quick, and I'm not going to get into all the details here because you can read them in David's book, but I just want to flesh things out for a second. So, okay. 
This guy, Colton Westbrook, whose official career title is linguist, goes from allegedly being a part of the CIA's Operation Phoenix program in Vietnam, uh, which was an absolute horror show, uh, to the LAPD's criminal conspiracy section uh, at the time that a division of the LAPD was focused on targeting militant black radicals. And remember, Donald DeFries was working with the LAPD at the time as an informant. So next, uh, Westbrook makes his way up from LA to Vacaville Prison, where he starts something called the Black Cultural Association, which somewhat strangely recruited mostly white radicals from Berkeley as tutors and connected them with burgeoning would-be revolutionaries like Donald DeFries. Uh, this program was where DeFries first met some of the original members of what would soon become the SLA. In his book, Talbot characterizes this group, the uh, Black Cultural Association, essentially as a kind of behavior modification operation, masquerading as a prison study group. No matter how you look at it, this whole arrangement is very weird, to put it mildly. In any case, DeFries was inexplicably transferred to Soledad Prison in 1972, where, hmm, Colton Westbrook just happened to be transferred around the exact same time. And I get it. Maybe you're thinking this all sounds a bit circumstantial. Well, <laughs> just wait until you hear what happened next. He was able to escape with remarkable ease from Soledad. This is Donald Freeze. He walked out. He scaled the fence. He, walked, he got himself to Berkeley. And then he presented himself to all these white radicals who he'd known in prison, who had, you know, uh, gathered uh, uh, at his feet in prison as uh, their leader, as someone who's a uh, potential assassin uh they were freaked out by that well hold on let me let me just pause there let me just pause there because i think people uh you know especially people in the younger generation now might hear this talk about like cia brainwashing programs and think this sounds a little bit wacky however we know (laughs) as they as the kids say now there are receipts of uh these different programs like in san francisco for example very very well documented cases that have been you know open the books have been opened essentially on things like uh where the cia was using lsd for example to try to figure out how to brainwash people unwittingly and they were carrying out these experiments essentially on the bay area population at the time um so can you give a little context to just like Again, this just even I've read your book several times now, and every time I read it, I'm like shaking my head with disbelief. Like, it's hard to believe that these intelligence apparatuses, these intelligence agencies were so reckless at the time. What like what were they trying to do? Well, there was a huge effort at the time to control the prison population. Radicalism really was centered in the prison system in California in those years, the late 60s and early 70s. A huge disproportionate percentage of the prison population was black and brown. George Jackson became a hero to the left, including the white left, in those years. He was a convict. He wrote the book, Soledad Brother, in Blood in My Eye. And he was, uh, you know, thrown in prison for a petty crime, knocking over a gas station. And he was in prison uh, from the time he was a teenager his whole life. He became radicalized, politicized in prison. And there was an effort, I think, after Jackson 
to crack down on the radicalism there. White radicals felt they needed that kind of leadership, felt that people like Jackson and others were the charismatic black leaders they were looking for. Mm -hmm. So Donald Fries, I think, in the wake of George Jackson, appealed, had the same appeal. He was a charismatic guy. He collected white radicals from Berkeley uh, while he was in prison. And they were going down there to participate in like prison education programs, right? Exactly. And so he, uh, some of them, the more gullible ones, uh, fell under his sway while he was in prison. Then when he appeared, suddenly he was free, a free man for some reason. He got out with, as I said, with remarkable ease from Soledad. After his very mysterious escape. After his very mysterious escape, uh, he presented himself as their leader. And, you know, a few of them were gullible enough and, I think, naive enough to follow him. And he collected around him a group of, about, uh, you know, 10 different white radicals who thought that he was uh, the incarnation, reincarnation of someone like George Jackson. And they followed him to their death. Yeah, I think one of the hallmarks of the cults, especially of this era, is the sexually dominant charismatic leader, right? We've seen this, you know, through the Jim Joneses of the world and, you know, all these other kind of nefarious characters who emerged during this very strange time. But uh, the SLA was no different, right? Uh, You write about DeFries walking around nude, I believe I'm quoting you here, like fully erect and, you know, sleeping with all the women. And, you know, yeah. basically uh, he was the alpha male of this group, right? Yes. He felt that was his prerogative, that he had, you know, he had control of all these women's bodies. He actually raped Patty Hearst, uh, according to Patty Hearst, in, in, in the closet uh, when he first uh, encountered her after she was kidnapped. Yeah. So he was... Uh, Yes, uh, he presented himself as a dominant alpha male within this group, and that's the way they treated him. Uh, um, the, the Marcus Foster, uh, I think, assassination, which is very peculiar given the target, as we talked about earlier, was carried out by Sin Q, Donald DeFries, and by one of his acolytes, Nancy Lang Perry. She shot him with her weapon and finished him off. Uh, Nancy Lang Perry was a nice white girl from Santa Rosa. Her father had been a Goldwater-loving uh, conservative, uh, owned a furniture store in Santa Rosa. She grew up in kind of an all-American way, but she was radicalized by the 60s. I quote her at length uh, in how the events of the 1960s blew her mind, literally, and yeah. she became a radical. Someone who saw how black people were subjugated in this country and yet turned against progressive black educator Marcus Foster, said he was not a human being, he was a pig, and he deserved to die. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's such important context, this uh, milieu, you know, these white radicals in Berkeley and the East Bay and, and the Bay Area at the time, not to excuse their behavior in joining the SLA by any means, but I think these were people who probably came into the movement with optimism and hope and then saw like we've been talking about these assassinations the endless war in vietnam nixon lying in the white house and basically being surrounded by the corruption the violence the brutality of the world around them thought the only way to solve these problems is through violent revolution and uh the path towards revolution that they took was uh, unfortunately through following this 
character Senku who uh, whose ideas were just twisted. I don't know how how else to put it. I agree. I, I was the young radical myself at the time at Santa Cruz, UC Santa Cruz. And I'd been thrown at military school in, in Los Angeles as a kid growing up in high school. So I was angry, too. I understood the assassinations, the lack of hope, uh, the, the feeling that all was futile in this country, that uh, the militaristic uh, sort of mentality, uh, the U.S. imperial mentality was going to dominate, going to win. And no matter what we did, no matter how many protests we uh, organized, it, wasn't, it didn't seem to have any effect at all on power. So I understand that kind of the feeling of despair that they had and anger and fury that these uh, white radicals in Berkeley uh, had, like Nancy Link Perry. I understand that process of radicalization because I myself felt that same way. But they went way too far and they chose a leader, uh, Donald Friesenku, who was obviously, I think, a construct. Yeah. He was a construct of the police intelligence, and he was a monster that, that the police had created, the intelligence community, and then they put him down because he was out of their control. I think he drank his own Kool-Aid. I think Donald Freeze decided that he was a great revolutionary leader in the mode of uh, Sin Q, who was the black slave, the African slave, who led the rebellion on the Amistad, uh, right. the slave ship in the 1830s. Right. That's the real history historical character that he named himself after. Exactly. Yeah. So it went to his head, I believe. I believe he really did feel he was the reincarnation of Sinque, of Che Guevara, of George Jackson. And uh, that's why they put him down. Yeah. Well, I want to come back to that because um, I think that, you know, this isn't uh, just speculation. There's some evidence that you have in your book to, you know, support this theory. But um, before we get there, you mentioned Patty Hearst a couple of minutes ago. And I think if there's there's anything that kind of pops into people's minds when they think of the SLA, it's because of this extremely high profile kidnapping that captured the national, the international media's attention for years really this saga played out and it's really kind of almost unlike anything that's ever happened before or since there's been books there's been documentaries there's been all kinds of lengthy explorations of uh what happened to patty hearst but can for the especially for the listeners who maybe are younger in my audience who might not know anything about this saga can you summarize what happened with the kidnapping and the aftermath of uh patty hearst well, she was from a, a media dynasty, the Hearst family, and it can be compared today to the Murdoch family of uh, Fox News uh, infamy. Um, the Hearst family uh, was created, the Hearst dynasty, rather, by Citizen Kane himself, <laughs> by William Randolph Hearst uh, in the early 20th century. And uh, by the time she came along, of course, uh, William Randolph had passed on, but he'd passed that media empire. He owned many newspapers and TV stations uh, to his sons. And one of the sons was her father, Randy Hearst, who uh, was the publisher of The Examiner in San Francisco. Uh, so Patty Hearst was the, a young heiress, grew up in Hillsborough, the child of wealth, uh, 
really was kind of, uh, for her station, kind of a maverick. Uh, she went to Berkeley, which, of course, was kind of notorious at the time as a free-thinking school. She went to protests against the war in Vietnam while she was there. She was not just your typical society girl. She was someone who was a little more woke, as we say today, than uh, normal for her class and her background. And her dad clearly favored her. Randy thought she was kind of spunky and fun. So she, again, like Marcus Foster, was an odd target for the SLA to focus on her, of all people, to kidnap because she was not a typical society girl. And what the hell was were they uh, doing that in the first place? So I think, again, it was Donald Fries, the Sinq's effort to get media attention. That's why they kidnapped her. And that definitely, that went according to plan. (laughs) (laughs) It worked. Yeah. Uh, There's a huge media carnival after she was arrested. There were cameramen and and reporters camped out 24-7 in front of the Vandy Harris mansion uh, in Hillsborough during that time. And then, you know, communiques from the SLA and Patty's evolution. I think what happened after he raped her, SNQ, uh, and uh, basically completely dominated her and terrorized her, was to turn into a, what I called a Stockholm Syndrome victim. Yeah. I think she identified with her captors. I think that's what happened. At first, she was appalled that she'd been kidnapped. She was appalled by these people. She thought they weren't very good looking. Right, because they kept her, uh, like, hooded and eye-masked for, like, weeks or months, right? And then they finally kind of, yeah, released her from the isolation. And and that's when she kind of, like was able to enter the the world again a little bit. But she'd been sexually abused, yeah, terrorized, yeah. and of course she identified with them for her own survival. Right. So I have a lot mm-hmm. of sympathy for Patty Hearst, what she endured. Uh, they, of course, turned her into Tanya, a revolutionary hero, right. and they knocked over a bank with her help. Uh, it, right, and, this was her first, uh, you know, months in isolation. All of a sudden, she's in the spotlight again, holding a, you know, a, a machine gun in a bank, right? Shotgun. Or, oh, a shotgun, okay, yeah, in the bank. At Hibernia Bank here in San Francisco. So, yes, owned by uh, friends of the Hearst family. So, wow. um, at that point, the conservatives, the hardcore people like Evel Younger, who's the Attorney General of California, turned against her and said she was fair game, said yeah. the police should shoot to kill, shoot her too. Randy Hearst was outraged, and I think this was the first kind of split between him and his society friends and political friends. And speaking of splits, I think there's one thing that kind of split the laughter, kind of, you know, muddied the complicated image of the SLA. Because I think after Marcus Foster, you know, many people, even on the left, the far left, like the Black Panther Party, for example, denounced them. You know, who is this shadowy group that we've never heard of assassinating a black leader? But then they did something that won a lot of public support, which was part of the ransom demands for Patty Hearst was demanding free food distribution here in places like Oakland, right? That's right. And Randy Hearst put in some of his own money and some corporate money from the Hearst Corporation, $2 million at the beginning for the People in Need program, PIN, it was called. And yes, it was a major, massive food giveaway. And Randy Hearst, his crowd organized it and brought in a lot of radicals to run it. And he became close to those people. He became closer in some ways to those people than to his Republican friends who turned him down when he wanted money donated to the food program. So 
Randy Hearst, to his credit, I think, evolved from the society guy, this Republican, this rich uh, person, into something more interesting. And he did it out of love for his daughter, Patty. Uh, he started hanging out with radicals. He started hanging out in this underground world to try and figure out if there's some way to free her. And uh, Randy Hurst was open to change. Now, a lot of those people took advantage of him. It was a strange world that he collected, a strange network of people. And some of those, like Sarah Jane Moore, who tried to kill President Ford at the time. Yeah, you know, before you go any further, yeah. let's, I, I mean, there's just so many rabbit holes we could go down with this story. But I think that actually is one worth just summarizing the, the story of Sarah Jane Moore, because I think for people who hear the story and just find it incredible, Incredible. This is one of those stories that really demonstrates what a hall of mirrors this whole saga was. And again, just stranger than fiction. You could never write a character like this. So what's like the nutshell version of this woman who went on to try to assassinate the president? Yeah, very, very strange. I think Hall of Mirrors is the right way to describe <laughs> me. Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. To be on the left in those years in the Bay Area was a, really a mind blower. So this strange woman who had... Uh, was married to a, a doctor, a wealthy doctor in Danville, had been married, uh, showed up at the food giveaway program and became insinuated deeply in that program. Got to know Randy Hurst, got to be the bookkeeper for the program, but she was also being turned by the FBI, the local office of the FBI, Charlie Bates, who ran it, and the SFPD, the San Francisco Police Department, turning her into an informer. And so they wanted they wanted to know what was kind of going on behind the scenes with the Hearst family, right? So the FBI approached her and basically tried to get her to spy for them. Exactly. Yeah. She was spying for the cops and for the FBI on Hearst, and she was working in a friend of Randy Hearst at the same time, trying to find the SLA contacts to Patty Hearst. So she had multiple agendas. She was serving multiple masters. Who the hell knew what she was really doing? And then she ends up to, to you know, prove her bona fides to the radical left, she takes. Uh, she tries to assassinate President Ford one day, yeah. and only because of a gay uh, military veteran, he knocked down her arm when she tried to squeeze off a second shot and saved probably the life of the president. Right. As a I result, mean, she came incredibly close to assassinating she, the president. She, she came very close uh, that day. So again. This was one of the strange characters who was produced during this SLA saga. And uh, we could go on and on talking yeah. about the strange yeah. people who showed up. They are getting ready for an assault, and there's no doubt about that. Uh, before we stop counting, there's another. About five plainclothes police cars have, have moved in on the corner on Compton Avenue here with officers with weapons, loaded weapons. Ah, now more officers are moving right into the position where we were, so they must be getting ready. I want to touch briefly on uh, the, sh the infamous shootout at the safe house that they had down in Los Angeles after they moved uh, Patty Hearst down to L.A., because not only was it just this kind of spectacular event that unfolded, you know, on TV for the whole world to see, but also I think it gives credence to this theory that uh, Sin Q was someone who the intelligence agencies, that the law enforcement agencies did not want going to trial. They did not want him telling his side of the story. So how was he killed? What 
explain the circumstances around his death, which, again, just like everything else in his life, is extremely sensational and bizarre and uh, violent. And I mean, it's hard. Again, you know, this is like a story of superlatives. It's hard to even describe, you know, what a bizarre saga this was. Well, about a week before the fiery shootout in Los Angeles to claim the life of not only DeFries, but his followers, many several of his followers, uh, a detective named Lake Headley was hired to look in the SLA, and he held a press conference. And he said, look, this guy DeFries is obviously an informer for the police, the prison system, intelligence community, and he's going to end badly. Uh, They have to eliminate him. It went to his head, this role that he was playing, and they'll probably kill him. Because, like you said, they don't want him to testify in court about who put him up to this, what his original purpose and role was. So, indeed, that house where the SLA and DeFries was holed up in Los Angeles was surrounded by uh, an overkill army of sheriffs, of cops, and they poured round after round, hundreds of rounds of ammunition. And uh, several of the tear gas projectiles, which are highly inflammatory, caught fire. So the house was on fire, too. So Sin Q uh, ended his own life. He put a bullet in his head uh, rather than be captured or killed by the cops. So uh, it was a shoot-in, Rolling Stone magazine said, not a shoot-out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there were so many bullets fired into that small house where they were holed up. Uh, then were fired out. So there was no way they were going to get alive. Now, Bill and Emily Harris uh, were in a different place. They were in a motel near uh, Disneyland. They were SLA members, and they had Patty Hearst, fortunately, with them. So the three of them watched this Holocaust on TV, and Bill Harris, who had fucked up, basically, during a shoplifting uh, you know, operation at a L.A. store, that led the cops to the house where DeFries was, said he was to blame. He was to blame. It was because of his own screw-up that the cops descended on DeFries and the others that day. Um, Bill Harris is another one we could talk about at Lane, another member of the SLA. He later went on to become a private detective himself uh, when he was released from prison. But he was abusive, according to Patty Hearst, and married to Emily Harris, but also abused to Patty Hearst until she broke away uh, afterwards from him. So the whole thing, as Todd Gitland, the uh, former president of SES, a longtime member of the New Left, a sociologist, later said the SLA was the graveyard of the left. And that was the feeling we had after that shootout, that everything we had touched had turned to shit, and that the strange kind of creation, kind of a monster that we created, the left had come out of the left, supposedly, had such a fiery and and demoralizing end. But of course, while the SLA used her rhetoric, while some of the members of the SLA were legitimate, I think, members of the Bay Area left, I think it was a creation in many ways of the police and intelligence world. And only something as as far-fetched, as histrionic, as fairy tale like as the world of the Burke left working with 
the equally, I think, unrealistic and strange world of the CIA could have created something like the SLA. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, one of these situations where we'll probably never know all the details. You know, a lot of people have taken uh, the story to their grave with them. But the CIA, the FBI, they did things during this era that have been proven that came out during, you know, the Cointel profiles that were stolen from an FBI office. Um, we know uh, this is not above the intelligence uh, agencies to kind of play these kind of uh, cloak and dagger games to turn groups on the left against each other. Uh, infamously, the FBI fomented the rivalry between the Black Panther Party and the US organization in Los Angeles that resulted in the murders of Bunchy Carter and John Huggins. Um, and again, you know, these things have all been proven. So I don't think for the listeners who hear this and again are maybe unclear about what we're saying here, it's not that uh, Donald DeFreeze, Sink was taking direct orders throughout this whole operation from, you know, a CIA handler or some kind of agent, but that he was molded, shaped, set loose as a chaos agent. And I mean, at least that's my interpretation and that he eventually went on his own path, but he was kind of set on this path by forces uh, that were greater than him, you know, that were actively seeking to destroy the left at the time. I agree with you. I don't think we know the full story of who Donald Fries was, who he was serving. But I think we know something about his story that's alarming. Mm. And there were people being created at the time uh, by the police, by the prison system, by the CIA, by the FBI, who were, I think, meant to infiltrate the system, the mm. radical yeah. uh, network. And... Uh, we knew at the time that even before we got the files that we were infiltrated, there were snitches, there were informers, and it creates a sense of paranoia uh, within groups, within radical groups, because you don't know who to trust. So yeah. I think Sin Q was someone right who was creating that strange penal laboratory, but then, as I said earlier, it went to his head. Yeah. He really felt he was a revolutionary figure. He got, you know, accolades. He got sexual favors uh, that he took from the women in the group. So I think it went to his head, and he became a threat to those people. I think Colton Westbrook is the key person here. I think Colton Westbrook, who taught linguistics at Berkeley, UC Berkeley, as I said, had served a CIA role in the war in Southeast Asia, was a strange guy. He held a press conference uh, when the SLA uh, kind of burst on the scene. And he appealed in a kind of a strange dialect to DeFries at that point, kind of he appealed to him to surrender to not harm Patty Hearst and he referred to a, a leader that they both uh, you know were under the influence of or listened to DeFries uh, responded to that strange press conference by putting out a hit on Colton Westbrook and he was he and his family were hustled to safety by the police uh, because DeFries had threatened him so I believe again this is an example of a monster who was out of their control, that the CIA, the prison system, the cops, the FBI, whoever, created uh, Donald Freese and Q, and then he really thought he was a hero. 
I mean, in some ways, DeFreeze and SLA being this uh, creation of government agencies seeking to destroy the left, that's kind of one of the only ways that you can really make sense of the fact that Marcus Foster was chosen as their first assassination target. Mm -hmm. um, because, of course, you know, uh, the what better way to divide left? What better way to explode a movement? What better way to drive wedges between progressives and radicals, between black and white, between, you know, various militant black groups than picking someone who is just such a, a powerful, like a powerful kind of mainstream black leader, right? I mean, mm -hmm. he was this character who for the racist forces, just to put it very bluntly, of the U.S. government, the, that was the kind of leader they didn't want to see, right? right? I right. mean, they were uh, threatened by people who um, were preaching or, you know, kind of taking a more moderate path. And, uh, you know, I think, I don't know, I feel like I'm kind of speculating here, but maybe by taking out him, it's like doing the most damage that could possibly be done. Well, like I said earlier, we were, we were all on the radical left. We were all puzzled by him as a target, by yeah. Mark. Why they chose him among all people. Again, this was someone who was not a iron-fisted conservative who you think would be a target. He was someone very flexible, very innovative in his way, very progressive, and was a strange target for the SLA to pick as their first action. So... I think I agree with you that he was chosen for political reasons because he was a progressive. Yeah. Um, wow. Well, we've covered a lot of territory here. Is there anything else that you want to mention? Any other notes about the SLA saga that you that you want people to take away from this conversation? I think it's, uh, as we talked about earlier, it's important to have empathy for the radical left. That's something people don't understand. Uh, the sense of hopelessness that existed among young people at the time. One leader, as I say, after the next being assassinated, and one hope after the next being snuffed out. So it was really important to, I think, have a feeling of empathy for that feeling, but at the same time to really learn the right lessons about how leaders can lead you astray. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's uh, a good note to end on. Um, David Talbot, it's been such a pleasure to have uh, have you on East Bay yesterday. You were one of my inspirations for starting the show with all your work on local history, uh, like this book that we're <clears throat> like this book that we're looking at right now, "Season of the Witch: Enchantment, Terror, and Deliverance in the City of Love." Um, this book inspired me. I'm sure it inspired many other people to learn more about history. Thank you so much for for joining me today. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Liam. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. Also, big shout out to Emily Foster at the Oakland History Center and everyone at AMLO who helped make the Audacity to Believe exhibit happen. Uh, did you know that this podcast is funded almost entirely through small donations from listeners like you? Uh, I, I really, I could not make the show if it wasn't for all the people who spend, you know, $3 or $5 or $10 through my Patreon page. Uh, so thanks to all of you who do that. And uh, if anyone else wants to support this podcast, you can find the donate link in the upper right-hand corner of eastbayyesterday.com. Uh, another way that you can help out is by sharing this show if you dug it. 
please tell your friends, tell your families, uh, bring it up at Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> next week. I don't know. Send it, email it, post it on social media. Uh, I don't have any advertising budget, zero dollars. So every recommendation helps a lot. I really appreciate it. Um, music for this episode came from Jason Stinnett and Justin Lee. You can find more of Jason's music at the Pacific Bells Bandcamp page. And finally, don't forget to sign up for my free newsletter. Uh, you can find the link for that also at eastbayyesterday.com. It's only about once a month. And uh, the Richmond Boat Tours that I recently announced sold out super fast. <laughs> Thanks to everyone who got tickets. But don't worry, I should be adding more soon, so hang tight on those. That's about it. Uh, I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue, and this has been East Bay Yesterday.